he, uh, we're just uh, enjoying the beautiful day as we, uh, we look here forward as we go here at Calvary Chapel, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We'll start the book, the Epistle to the Hebrews, or the Book of Hebrews. Or for some of us, as many time goes by, what book are you studying? Hebrews. It's just, it's just a beautiful, beautiful book. It's probably one of the books that most people, besides maybe Revelation, maybe um, you know, a few other books, Leviticus, I'm sure, is your favorite book. That's why you joined us on Wednesday night. So I know that's not one of those books you avoid, I know. But Hebrews has a tendency to... Uh, overwhelm some who are just starting to read uh, the, the scriptures. But I want to encourage you, once we go through this, I think you're going to fall in love with this book as much as I do and find that this is your favorite book as I find this is my favorite book. And so as we go through this, take notes, go back and re-listen. But important, just spend time reading through the scriptures here in the book of Hebrews and watch how the Holy Spirit will illuminate to you the truths that he has for us. We're only taking three verses this, uh, this, this, this <laughs> as we start Hebrews. You know, we got a lot of introductory to this book, but I assure you I can't teach the whole book in one day. Hey, let's just read here. Follow along with me. Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 1, God, who at various times and various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Father, we thank you for this morning as we open up your word. It's only by your Holy Spirit that you can speak to our hearts individually and speak to us with clarity and speak to us with a very sharp instrument to cut through all of the facades, to cut through all of the hard layers that maybe have been kind of hardened over the years, Lord, and layer upon layer of different situations, different traumas, different experiences that hardened our heart, Lord, in some way. An instrument that can take away any blotting of muddy mess that we've walked ourselves in or through this week. But it's by your power of the Holy Spirit you can wash all of that away. Have your way with us, Lord. In your precious name we pray. Amen. The book of Hebrews is basically a sermon. <laughs> it's a teaching. It's a letter that is written to Christian believers, Jewish Christian believers. We don't know where. We don't know what exactly what group of people. 
But we do know that Hebrews was addressing these Jewish believers to continue in the grace of Jesus Christ. It would also be, as you can take this, not only written to Jewish believers, but also Jewish non-believers, those who did not believe in the things of God, that they don't want to, they just only believed what they could see and touch and feel and see what's going on in the world around them. It would speak to them as well if they heard this letter being written or being uh, taught. The sermon playing out in front of them as Jewish non-believers. But it would encourage them to embrace him, the great savior of the world, Jesus Christ. That Jewish believers would no longer bow down or be pulled back into the rites and the rituals of Judaism, the Levitical system. They would no longer be living that legalism of life. That they would understand the grace of God. Jesus came to establish a new covenant. The New Testament. Christ is the perfect sacrifice. The true high priest. All the other priestlyhood. All the laws and rules and regulations. The checklist of ten has been all fulfilled. And we live by the grace of God today. Hebrews is a sermon that begins by exalting Jesus' greatness. Then what Jesus did on behalf of as the ultimate high priest. And then ends with a challenging challenge to all who listen to embrace Jesus' final work, his finished work on the cross that we refer to as the gospel. That is why there are very sobering, sobering warnings throughout the book of Hebrews as we will study. Saying if you go back to the old religion that you came from. The old religion of rituals. Of the do's and don'ts you must follow. The the fact that you will nullify the actual work of Jesus Christ on the cross that he did for you. Don't complicate your faith. Keep it all about Jesus. Keep it simple is what the book of Hebrews will teach us over these coming weeks and possibly months. The overall theme of Hebrews is simply put, the greatness of Jesus Christ our Lord is applied to our life not only doctrinally doctrinally, or practically. And how we are to live our lives for for Him fully. Jesus Christ is greater than all the old ways of religion doctrinally. Jesus Christ is greater in His majesty because as the Son of God, He is greater than the angels. He was greater than the Moses. He's greater than the prophets like Joshua. He was greater than the Levitical system that could ever be. That was incomplete message. In Jesus Christ, it is complete. And Jesus Christ is greater in the ministry practically because as the Son of Man, He died for us. He relates to us. And He works with us to do what he wants us to do for him.
Hebrews emphasizes the humanity of Christ. The humanity of Jesus more than any other book in the New Testament besides the Gospels. It also emphasizes the role of Jesus as a messenger, as a great mediator between God the Father and humanity. The one who brings forgiveness once and for all. Because of Christ's greatness, the new covenant of Christianity is superior to all other religion and religious practices. I know we are going to be blessed by reading and studying and discussing the book of Hebrews. And you will find, as much as I hope you find, that it becomes your favorite book. Because the theme of the book of Hebrews, because it's a simple message, it will point out the greatness of our Savior, the sufficiency of our Savior, and the beauty of Jesus as our great Savior. Now we see here in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 starts off very clear message for all those who were reading this letter. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So we start here in chapter, verse 1, in the first part of verse 2, we start here, the book of Hebrew opens with the name of its author. Yes, the author is God. Not who you think it is, not whom you might contemplate on, maybe not those who you would probably kind of debate with on who this, the author is of the book of Hebrews. It's not Luke. It's not Apollos, it's not Paul, but God. So there was no question in our minds who brings us the word of God. Now regarding the human author that God used to write this letter remains unknown to us. It's a mystery. But the book's inspiration by the Holy Spirit is still evident for us today. Many commentators suggest it was Barabbas and gives us reasons. And there's some good reasons. Some give us Apollos. Some give us, again, Luke or Philip or others. But it still remains a mystery because there's not a clear message on who wrote the book of Hebrews. All we know is God's word given to man who wrote it down. Whoever wrote the Hebrews knew Greek extremely well. He was very knowledgeable of the Old Testament scriptures. When we study the book of Hebrews, we will see that very clearly. He was very well organized and capable of taking all the complexity of doctrine and put it in such detail, laid out in such detail, it gives well-reasoned arguments of why what we believe. We also know that this person knew Timothy extremely well. We also know that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, as we will see. But no matter 
who the human author is of the book of Hebrews. There is, are indications that it was written fairly early in the New Testament. How do we know that? I believe, and many commentators believe, it was written somewhere around 67 to 69 A.D. Why? Because there's a reference to Timothy in Hebrews 13, verse 23, which places it fairly early in that time period. The second kind of clue that we have is that the present lack of physical persecution that the Hebrews does not speak of doesn't sound like they're in being much persecuted. We see that in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. So that puts it a little early. But finally, there's nothing discussed by the writer about the destruction of the temple or the fact that Jerusalem was overtaken in 70 A.D. So because of that and because of the tone and the specifics of the writing of the Hebrew uh, book, we know that there's no way that an author would have overpassed or not discussed the takeover of the, of Jerusalem or the destruction of the temple. So it puts it earlier in the time frame. Now God, who obviously wrote the book, <laughs> there is no attempt in the book or any other place of the book where God has to be proven that God exists. Do you realize so many people say, where do you prove there is a God? God doesn't have to prove that he exists. He exists. It's your job to make sure you understand there is a God. So God doesn't have to, or neither does a, a, a writer of the Hebrew book here, have to prove that God exists. God exists. That's foundational. That's fact. Scripture assumes we learn of God's existence or some of his attributes from his nature, from his creations. How do we know that? Go back and read Psalm 19, verse 1 through 4. Read Romans 1.20. I will give you those two items today. Psalm 19.1, the psalmist writes, The heavens declare the glory of God. Oh, the old adage, the old saying, how does someone who's on an island, remote island, all by himself, how does he know and get to know who God is? By the creation of God. He just has to, or he, she just has to look up and see the stars in the universe and know there was a creator of what he, they're looking as a creation. We see in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible, or attributes, are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they will be without excuse. When you die and you leave this body and you stand in front of God, you and I will have no excuse to say, I did not know you. Why did you not reveal yourself to me? And he says, I did. And let me flash back through your life how many times since birth that I have revealed myself in my creation. 
Do you realize for those who do not believe today that are not born again, you have to struggle daily to ignore and to push back God's presence and revealing himself to you? And each time you're putting a layer of hardness on that heart of not wanting to receive. I pray today is not the day you put another hard layer on your heart, but you hear the truth and you allow your heart to soften and you will receive Jesus Christ as your great Savior. Why? And maybe it's the first time some of you may have heard this. Do you know the great Savior of the world, the God of the universe, the creator of all things, loves you? Yes. He loves you. So much that he died for you to pay for the penalty of all of our sins, your sins. He's the great Savior. He's spoken various times and in different ways. The revelation given through the prophets was brought in various ways to, to man. Sometimes through parables. Sometimes through historical narrative. Sometimes through dramatic presentations. Sometimes through the Psalms and the Proverbs. Yet the idea here is that the prophets spoke to the fathers in various ways. Not that God spoke to the prophets in various ways, even though that is true. We see in the Old Testament, God spoke to various ways in the Old Testament. We know that he, uh, uh, God spoke to Moses through a burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. We know God showed up to Elijah and he spoke to him in a still, small voice. We see that in 1 Kings chapter 19. God showed up and spoke to Isaiah by a heavenly vision that he gave him. We see that in Isaiah chapter 6. Yet in none of these ways... Not through God speaking to your heart through his creation. Not through, he, through your conscience as he speaks to your conscience. Not even as he used angels to speak on his behalf. Not even through prophets, men that God raised up to speak truth. That wasn't even complete. The message was not complete through any of those methods that God used in the Old Testament or in the beginning of time. But now it was in a process or a period of time there would be a new covenant. A new where Jesus Christ, the Messiah, he would come as the perfect messenger. Many you'll see in the scriptures struggle with God's creation as being a messenger. So many other questions that I have. It could be my conscience. I, 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 just, I know that God is speaking into my head and speaking to me and he keeps revealing. And, and I have so many questions. I don't know. You've been, you may have, been, have met an angel and didn't even know it. You may have been entertaining an angel and you didn't even know it. But you just have so many questions. Questions. 
You've, you've, you've read and you've listened to what God gave to the prophets. And it seems to be hard for you to grasp the truths of God. And then the Father says, I will send the ultimate messenger. The great messenger. My son to you directly. God sent his son. And here through his son is God's final word to humanity. His final word. There's nothing more to be said. There is nothing left unsaid. It is all said in Christ, the great Savior. He speaks here in these verses, these last days, it speaks of the time of referring to the time of the age of the Messiah that would come. The Savior of the world. It may be a long period, but it is the last period. We are in the last period. Are you ready? In this last days, he spoke to us. This this first general mention to the readers. Who is us? He spoke to us. Who's us? And that is to Christians who are discouraged in their walk with Christ. The world's beating Christians up. They're coming against people who believe in Jesus Christ. There's always pressure from the world and pressure from things from the outside. But we see that the book of Hebrews was written to encourage discouraged Christians. To continue on strong with Jesus in light of the complete greatness that he gives us. Of who he is and what he has done for us. As we see here in the verse, spoke to us by his son. Jesus was brought a message from the Father. Jesus Christ himself is the message. Do you understand that? He is the message. The clear message, as clear as it can be and as complete as can be, you should not be looking for anything else or anyone else. Who has the complete story? Who has the complete answer? Who has the complete way? The only way is Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews, or at least most part, does not present Jesus speaking of himself at all. But the Father speaks concerning his Son. The book of Hebrews is the God the Father telling us what God the Son is all about. We see here at the end of verse 2 that whom he has appointed heir of all things. We're going to see here at the end of verse 2 and verse 3 seven traits or seven uh, descriptions of who his Son is. So God, the Father, is telling the reader here in the book of Hebrews to you and I the characteristics, the traits of his son that he has sent. Watch. Follow along, please. Whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Three, 
who being the brightness of his glory, four, the express image of his person, five, upholding all things by the world, by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, and lastly, number seven, sat down at the right hand of the majesty and high. Let's take each of these seven, for those who are note takers, look at the traits of who you Trust your life upon. The first is, Jesus is the inheritor. We see here, whom the heir of all things. Jesus is the heir of all things. Why is that important? Because this begins a glorious section describing Jesus and who he is. He's the heir of all things. This is the idea that Jesus is preeminent. Or greatness of who you follow. He's preeminent. That's a doctrinal truth you must understand. He is a great, great God. And it's connected to Jesus' standing over his firstborn of all creation. We read that and studied that in 1 Colossians, sorry, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. The Father, the Heavenly Father, God the Father, willed everything to His Son, Jesus Christ. And we, as children, are heirs of that. We see that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. This explains the parable we find in Matthew chapter 13. There's a man who goes and he sees and he's walking this land. And as he's walking the land, he discovers treasure on the land. But it's not his land. Because it's not his land, that means he can't touch the treasure. So what does the man do? He wants the treasure. So what does he do? We see in the parable, he goes and he purchases the treasure? No. He goes and purchases the land. And because he purchased the land, now the treasure because, becomes his. The parable speaks that God sent his son to purchase the field. How do we know that? Because the first, a few verses before Matthew 13 tells us the field is the world. So he came to purchase the world to get what? The world? No. He didn't, get to, he didn't go purchase the world. Jesus didn't give his life to purchase the world. He purchased the world to get the what? The treasure. Who's the treasure? You and I. He gave his life to purchase the world to get the treasure that's you and I because you're so precious to him. So Jesus is the inheritor. He inherited all. We are in joint heirs. We are inherited. We're in the family. The second is he made the worlds. So Jesus is the creator. The ancient Greek word here translated for worlds is aeon, which we get the English word eons, 
which means Jesus made more than just the material world. He created the material world. Also, he created the very ages, is what that ancient word means, or in the English word, it means ages, or history itself, in the creation of the Son of God. It's very important, this doctrine, you get down clearly. Understand that all three persons of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, were all involved in the creative process of creation. Creation occurred from the Father. We see that in Genesis 1.1. God created the heavens and the earth. By the Son, we see that noted in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Through the Holy Spirit, we see that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The Godhead, all three were involved in the creation of the universe. That you must be solid on because the scripture is clear. So Jesus is not only the inheritor, he is the creator. We see the third thing about our great Savior, and that is Jesus is the laser. The brightness of his glory, he says here in the scripture. Jesus is the brightness of the Father's glory. He radiates the glory of his Father out to all people. The ancient Greek word here for brightness, it means and speaks of the rays of the sunshine. Rays from the source of light. I refer to it as Jesus is my laser beam of God's glory. If you think about it, have you really seen the sun or only have you seen the rays of the sun? When you see the moon and it's all lit up, what do you see? It's the sun reflecting off the moon. That is how you see the moon. It's the rays from the sun, the source that illuminates the moon that we see. But with Jesus, it's not only that does he reflect the light, but he becomes, is the light. And probably the best analogy or picture or illustration in my mind that I see is, and think through this a little bit, is the illustration of that God spoke as like in a spectrum of light. The rainbow of colors are coming from all different directions. And Jesus becomes and takes as a prism, collects all of these variety of colors coming from everywhere from the Father and brings them in and becomes this laser beam of light that we all see. It's interesting when we see in heaven there is no sun nor moon. Why? Because Jesus is the laser beam of light and all he's all the light we need. 
He illuminates everything for us. So not only is Jesus the inheritor, not only is he Jesus the creator, and Jesus the laser, but we see in the fourth one is Jesus is the representer. We see there that says the express image of his person. What does that mean? It's the idea of an exact likeness has made by a stamp that Jesus actually or exactly represents God to himself. And you think about the old, time, old days here. They wanted to take a coin and get an image on the coin. What, would t- what would, does it require? It requires metal and it requires a stamp with an image on it. And when you press those two images together and stamp, what do you have? You have two images with the exact same expression of that image. That's who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is the exact exact expressed image of the Father. Philip says, Show us the Father. And it will, be, it will suffice us. Just show us the Father. What did Jesus say in John chapter 14, verse 9? Do you not understand that he who has seen me has seen the Father? The express image. If you're seeing me, you have seen the Heavenly Father. I am the express image of my Father. Oh, how fun it is when... You meet people who come in with their children and the son looks like an express image of dad. It's just in a little smaller version. But I mean, if you look at the face, you're like, that's like someone said it the other day, copy, paste. You know, it's in a current, current kind of vernacular for today. That's a copy, paste. But we see here in Hebrews an express image. Stamped. Exactly who the Father is. But Philip, one of the disciples, was asking the same question. Whoa, how we want to see the Heavenly Father. Look at me, Jesus says, and you have seen the Father. The fifth we see is Jesus is the sustainer. It says here, upholding all things by the word of his power. The idea behind the word translated upholding is better thought of meaning maintaining. The word does not have the idea of passively holding something up. Like you see in the, the, a lot of the shows there, like in the mythical atlas, he's got the big old earth on top of him. He's in, no, that's not what he's referring to here. But actively sustaining by the word of his power. In his earthly ministry, Jesus constantly demonstrated the power of his word. He could heal, he could give, he cast out demons, he took calamity, a storm, and he just said a word, and the seas calmed. At just an expression of one word. Why? Because he has the power to uphold 
all things. For you science buffs, how does the atom hold together? How does the atom, the very building blocks of all matter, hold together? Nothing other than Jesus Christ and his word. What is holding your marriage together? What is holding your parenting skills and ability to raise children? How is that going for you? How's your relationships with one another? How's that going for you? Who's holding up your sanity? The squirrel that runs in your head at times. What is holding you together? What's going to keep your world from falling apart? Maybe it's falling apart this morning. And that is why you're here. And that's why you're maybe listening online. Because your world is falling apart and you don't know what to do next. Let me tell you who can hold up all things in your life if you let him. There's only one thing. And the scriptures the scripture's clear. Only one thing, and that is the word of his power. Just ask. That's your part. You must take a step of faith and ask him to bring back your life into order. Maybe it's never been in order. To heal your marriage. Maybe it's never really been a healthy marriage. But if you will trust Jesus Christ. And it's by his word. Is going to uphold it. And bring it together. If you will trust him. How many times I have asked. I love asking young men. What is it like to be a certain age? I love that general question, especially 80-year-olds, the young ones. I really like asking 80-year-olds, what keeps your life, what's, what is it like being 80? What is it like to be 40s, 30s, your teens? Why you have the assurity of being in the loving hands of a Savior? Or are you out there doing it on your own? I can always tell by the response where they stand. Because you don't have that assurity apart from Christ. You're just holding on. And some days I remember, and before I was saved, I was holding on like by the fingertips. And I knew just one little, I would be gone. You know, it's one of those feelings. But Jesus is the sustainer. We also see number six that Jesus is the purifier. It says right here, Himself purged our sins. From the previous description there as a sustainer, we know that the Son of God is being a great, is a great being, a great power, great wisdom that we can pull from, that we can receive from Him. And knowing that, 
Now we know he is also being a great love. How do we know he is a great love and an agape love? Because we see right here in our scripture today, himself, Jesus himself, purged our sins. He didn't commit the sins. He was sinless. Why would he come to you and purge your sin? Why? Because he loves you. Do you know you're loved by the creator of the universe? But he himself purged our sins. He did it himself. He didn't sit there and say, oh, let me go hire someone to do it. Let me go find some person and deceive them and have them go to the cross and do it. He says, I myself are going to come and die on the cross for my sin and your sin. As we study Leviticus on Wednesday night, we learn that the Hebrew Christians to whom this book is addressed to would have known that on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest and the only one the high priest could go in to the Holy of Holies and sacrifice and for the covering of the sin of the nation of Israel. That the weight of entire weight of the nation of Israel was on his shoulders to go in the proper way according to God's way only to go in and to sprinkle that blood from the sacrifice of that animal on the the on the uh, Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat for the forgiveness or the covering of the sins of the nation of Israel. But it wasn't complete. It was temporary. He had to do it every year. Once a year, he had to do it for the nation of Israel. But now, but now, Jesus comes and goes and becomes the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice on the cross. And he becomes the ultimate high priest who does that sacrifice. And it's not temporary. It is complete. His sacrifice is final. His sacrifice is finished. Jesus becomes the great purifier in everyone's life. If you will believe. If you will trust him. Completely. Surrender all. And number seven. We see Jesus is our ruler. Sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's a position of majesty. It's a position of honor. It's a position of glory. It's a position of a finished work. I'm sitting down. It's complete. It's done. This position of Jesus sets him afar above all creation. So the question should be asked. What does Jesus Christ do now while sitting at the right hand of the Father? The majesty on high. What does he do now? Do you know? Many of you probably do know because you know the scripture. We know 
In Romans 8.34, he speaks to the fact that Jesus now sitting at the right hand of the Father, the majesty on high, intercedes. He makes intercession for you and me. He prays for you. Father, I paid the penalty for, for him. Father, I paid the penalty for her. I paid the price. He's mine. She's mine. They're my great treasures I've inherited. Do you know that the great Savior is sitting at the right hand of the majesty and I and is thinking about you constantly? Not looking for mistakes, not looking for where you fall short, not where you've missed the mark, not for the sin that you just committed or just thought and committed. He's sitting there and says, I love him. I love her and I paid the penalties of that sin that they just thought of. And then the Father looks down in your life, and what does he see? He sees his Son in you. He sees that you're white as snow. Not only does he not see sin, he doesn't even see a sinner, he sees a saint. Jesus is our ruler. My brothers and sisters, may we meditate on these traits, these, these descriptions of the great Savior that we trust our lives with. Because the more you meditate on the things that you're being taught from the scriptures, the greater you see your Savior, the greater that the sins or the things that control you or keep you blinded will fade away. They will not have the grip on you like they used to be. And many of you understand what that means. May you keep your eyes on Jesus, the great Savior. Amen?